0: Many of us, more than likely, at uh, one point or another, and maybe even today, uh, have a view, I think especially when I was growing up, have a view that holiness is to be very, very grim. Like to be a really serious Christian, you're going to be really seriously just not very exciting. Very, very just bleh, right? Um, that holy people don't smile, they don't laugh. Um, uh, it, was, it was once said of the Puritans in, a, in kind of a knocking way that Puritans are the people who have a sneaking suspicion that someone somewhere is having a good time. I used to think that being a Christian was that. They think, well, you're very serious, you can't have fun, just be quiet and be holy, right? That's what I thought it was. And and the culture we live in, uh, holiness is outwardly repulsive, right? If you seek to be holy holy outside of these walls, uh, why would you want to do that? That's vile, that's unattractive, it's Ugly, right? It's it's an old way of living, right? Uh, but biblically, the Bible says that holiness is actually something that everybody uh, desires uh, as a believer. That actually we're all wired as even people that we desire, namely to see beauty. In the Bible, holiness is equated with beauty. Did you know that? So, for instance, in Psalm twenty nine, verse two, and in Psalm ninety six, verse nine. It talks about how God has the splendor, or maybe even the beauty, depending on what your translation says, the splendor of holiness. Well, it's, that's beautiful, right? God is, God's holiness is attractive. It's beautiful. It's who he is, right? So God doesn't just live in a—God's a, not in heaven just being dull and bored and, well, I guess a better rule today, right? He's infinitely happy, infinitely gracious and good and loving what he does, right? So holiness, then, is not a plain living— uh, it's not living just blatant, like a bland life. It actually has the most excellent, glorious person uh, in mind, right? Because we believe that Jesus is infinitely admirable, right? Well, to be holy is to be like Christ. That means that it's, it's to admire something great and awesome, right? Uh, one man said this one named Thomas Brooks, who I, I also enjoyed reading. He said that holiness differs, from, differs nothing from happiness except in the name. So, he would argue that holiness and happiness are the same thing, just different spelling. <laughs> so, could it be that in your life there's a direct correlation between your lack of joy and your pursuit of holiness? So, God desires us, his people, to be dressed in the beauty of holiness, to carry themselves in, in the mire of the world, to be unstained from the world, right? To reflect God's nature. And the Bible says that's actually how. You can be more happy as if you are more holy, right? They're not divorced from each other. They're actually married together. However, there's a vast difference between holiness and morality. So I went to school with a guy named Josh in high school. Uh, We were the same age. I think maybe I was a class above him. Um, He was probably the most, the kindest man, boy I've ever met. He never shot his mouth off uh, And practice. The coach would say run sprints. He didn't complain or grab. He just ran, Right? Um, never swore. I don't think he ever got suspended. I mean, just—I mean, he just—he was helpful. He was nice to me. I mean, just a very, very kind man. If you ask him if he's a believer, he would say no. very odd, isn't it? So holiness is not the same as morality, right? They are different. Uh, one is true, right? One is a painted formalism, right? Any unbeliever can be moral, but a true Christian can be truly holy, right? Charles Spurgeon said it this way, that holiness is better than morality. It goes beyond. Holiness affects the heart. It respects the motive. So let me give you an example. Uh, Moral people do not act wrongly, right? So if someone wants to be moral, they're not going to go rob a bank. They're going to not do that, right? But holy people detest the thought of doing something sinful. Do you see the difference? Mr. Morality may not commit outward sin, but Christians want to be pure in heart, right? There's, there's a difference there, and I hope you're catching that. The Bible says that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So I hope that say you think, okay, that sounds good. I want that. How can I, how can I be that way? Because I don't want to just have outward. I want inward. Right? I want true holiness, right? The Bible says there are two types of holiness, and I think if you understand this part, this entire sermon will make tons of sense. Uh, if not, then I've, then I've failed uh, to assist you in this way. The Bible says there are essentially two types of being holy. One is given, the other is grown. Uh, One is imparted, the other is increased. If you know this, this will be very helpful. So upon being saved as a Christian, um, God has made you holy, right? You've been set apart. You are already holy. If you're a Christian, you are 100% holy. We, We would call that Uh, Your position, right? You would call that uh, your definitive. So what you are as a Christian is holy, right? What does a saint mean? Well, it means a holy one, right? So if you're a Christian by nature, you're automatically holy, right? You're set apart 100%, right? 1 Peter 2 says you are a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So it's what you are. You're set apart for God from the world, right? But then there's another part of of holiness, which, which, which when God says, You must be holy, for I am holy, right? So you're called to be holy, even though you already are. So there's another way. This is called progressive sanctification. So one is your positions, what you are, and now this is what you must become. So think of, I think the best example is always the Old Testament. You think of uh, the Israelites, they were saved from Pharaoh, right? They uh, They were saved to be God's people. You are my people, and then what are the Ten Commandments? Therefore, act like my people. Right? Do you see the difference? You already are. Now, now be what you are, right? So, as a Christian, we need to understand that you already are holy, right? You, you, you've been given that. You are that. So, therefore, you can become holy. Do, do you catch that? If you miss the first one, you will never get the second one. But if you are holy, you can become more holy, right? And if you look at Ephesians 2, Paul has just walked us through this hymn, right? Chapters uh, 2, verses 6 through 11, the hymn of Christ. And, and I think for you, I'm going to answer three questions um, about what is sanctification, what it means to become more holy. What is that? What does it look like? That sort of thing. So I want to ask three questions and walk these through with you. And I hope that you will find this very helpful. And I think it could be um, foundationally important to everything you're going to do from tomorrow and on. So the first question is this. Uh, what is the process of sanctification? So what is the process? What does it look like to become more holy? What's the process? How do you do it? And there are three principles I want to show you in the first two verses. And then for that, we're going to just fly. So the first two verses we're going to slow down on and then we're going to just pick up a lot of speed, okay? So what is the process of sanctification? Look at verses 12 and 13. First, it is continual. So look at verse 12. Therefore, so when you read therefore, what should you ask? What is it there for, right? Well, this is because what Paul said about who Christ is and what he did for us, right? Obeeing to the point of death, exalted. Every knee will bow that Christ is Lord, right? Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. So Paul says you should always be obeying, right? He's telling the Philippians, as you've always been obeying, keep obeying, right? There's no distinction, so Jesus was obedient to the point of death. How then should Christians act? Well, the same way, right? we should be obedient to the point of death. Right? If, if Jesus did that, we should be doing the same thing, right? If the master did it, so should the servants. There's no, distinct, there's no difference. We should be just like him, right? Notice that Paul doesn't even command it. Verse 12 is, not, "It's not a command. As you've always obeyed, that's not a command, right? That's a description. So Paul assumes that Christians are just always obeying. To be a Christian is just, it's assumed you're obedient, right? It's not even a a command of continual obedience. He just assumes it. So the process of becoming more holy, the process of sanctification, is a continual display of our continuing devotion. Do you see that? Romans 6.4 says, Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk... In newness of life. So Christians do not have perfection, but they have a new direction. That's that's the key distinction here. Christians don't change like leaves on a tree, right? When the seasons change, the leaves change, they look beautiful, they go from green to this color, and they fall away. They change according to the weather. Well, Christians don't change according to their their season, right? We don't change our devotion to the Lord. Rather, we are we are an evergreen, right? There's an evergreen just right out here. It's green year-round, right? Well, as Christians, we should be righteously obedient year-round, right? But unlike evergreens, we should also bear fruit. And that's the distinction of a believer. Matthew 3, verse 8 is a very simple verse to have in the back of your mind. And it's John the Baptist saying, bear fruit, so show evidence of your faith, in keeping with repentance. That's the Christian life in a verse. You bear fruit, you're just always repenting and trusting, right? So because Christ is everlasting the same, he continues to always be who he is. Friends, we should have great encouragement to remain faithful, right? If God gave you grace when you were converted, do you think he'll give you grace tomorrow? Well, certainly he will, right? If he's done it, then he'll always do it now, right? The same goodness he was to you then, he'll be good to you today and tomorrow, right? Surely goodness and mercy will follow me. How many days of my life? Do you know that? All, right? It's not just I, most of them all, right? So, friends, let us see that the holiness that we display here in church is also displayed out there somewhere else, right? So, a good question to ask is, is the holiness that I have at home, if I were to just automatically photocopy and bring it here, would it look the same? I think for all honest, there is a shade of difference, right? We're all better in public than we are at private, but biblically, what we are in private, we are in truth, right? So, we should strive, therefore, together to walk the narrow path with greater vigilance, right? Lord, help me to be consistent, right? Because I'm that way. I need to be more, more consistent, too. I struggle. I'm more sharp with my kids at home than I am in public. Just be upfront. right? And that's, I, and I, I it ought not be that way. So let's be what we are in, in truth, which is who we are in private. Let's seek to be more faithful. Second principle, so it's continual. Second, it's strenuous. Look at verse 12b. This is where it gets very interesting. So continually, then Paul says, this is the command, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So Christians must labor intentionally, right? Patiently, seriously, difficultly, painfully, right? The Christian life is kind of like a stumbling forward. It's kind of like rolling down an up escalator, right? You're just kind of falling, but you're going up, right? You're making progress, but you're going up, right? You're stumbling, it's difficult, right? Every Christian that fails to tend his faith will see weeds of unbelief sprout up, right? It, it's, it's inevitable. You will see weeds of prayerlessness. You will have more frustration, right? If we fail to tend our faith, those things will automatically happen. There's just no doubt. And you guys know this. The Bible uses very, very strong language um, how you should treat your sin, right? Uh, or or how, to live, how to live as a Christian. Strive for the narrow gate, right? Agonize, it means agonize. Uh, cut off your right hand, right? Tear out your right eye. That's not gentle. That's very harsh language, right? Uh, put off, put to death, deny yourself. Paul says, uh, work out. This is difficult. The Christian life requires effort, right? Can we agree on that? It's, you have to do certain things. You should not do other things, right? You have to fight your sin. And oftentimes in America, uh, we have done And I take part of this too. We've done a bad job in telling believers, hey, the Christian life life is actually very difficult. Uh, To be a Christian is not easy. It's not simple. It's not the American way. It's not traditional. It's not natural. It's actually, it requires effort, right? It is hard to be a believer. It's a narrow way, right? It's narrow. It's uphill. Uh, C.S. Lewis said it this way. If you want a religion to make you feel very comfortable... I certainly do not recommend Christianity. The Christian life requires putting off and putting on, requires following and running and trusting and obeying, right? It is difficult. In Acts 14, the, one of the first things that Paul told the first converts in Acts 14, verse 22, these are brand new believers. What is Paul's advice to them? Listen to this, Acts 14, 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples... Paul, encouraging them to continue in the faith. So continue, so keep, keep be faithful, right? And saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So continue because it's going to be hard. And can we agree that's true? It's going to be hard. There are days where it's going to be, some days will be easy, some days it will be very difficult, right? So just as working out requires um, daily training, daily exercise, right? Putting on more weights on the dumbbell, um, Running the treadmill again, you know, more speed, more strength, more repetition, more endurance. So too does the normal Christian life. The Christian life is just, you have to work out your salvation, right? But notice that Paul says, work out, not work for, right? So we don't work for it, we work it out. Let me give you an example. So religion would, so just religiosity, just religion would say this to work into yourself what Christ has done, namely this. Get under under biblical teaching, get around it, pray about it, do Christian things. Hopefully those things will impart life to you. If you do the things God commands, they'll give you life, right? It'll change you. It'll start to norm who you are. It'll it'll alter you. It'll change. It'll form you. If you get around Christian things, you'll become a Christian, right? Well, is that true? Is it like contagious like that? Well, not necessarily, right? We would say doing christian things doesn't make you a believer, right? Uh standing in a garage doesn't make you a car. Pretty sure, right? There's a verse in a section if you have your bible you are welcome to turn there in Isaiah chapter 1 starting in verse 11 where God says some very very staggering things to his own people. So these are people who claim to be followers and worshipers of the true God, right? And Isaiah chapter 1 Starting verse 11, the Lord says some very interesting things. I want to read them for you. Isaiah 1, verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Uh, you have, right? We're obeying. Oh Keep reading. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in Psalm assembly. Verse 14, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Why does God speak like that? Quit giving me offerings. Quit doing what I say. Why is he say, well, Because they're doing it. It's just outward, right? It's just formal. It's not real. It's, we'll go through the motions and we'll just do what he says, right? And God's saying, I hate that. I, abs- I command it, but I hate what you're doing, right? Because it's not from the heart. It's just outward, moralism, doom what God says. God's saying it's not from the heart. I don't want it, right? I actually loathe it. It's a very shocking, very shocking passage. So what is the cure? Well, John 3 says this, you must be what? born again, right? That's, that's the cure. The Christian gospel changes our hearts and then our hands follow after, right? Let uh, me put it for you this way. Do you guys know what lions like to eat? I can tell you what they don't like to eat. They don't like to eat salad. Do you know that? They like nice, fresh caribou, right? Just kill and eat it, right? Religion is like forcing lions to eat vegetables. If, maybe if we put around them enough, they'll just start to like it. They'll, hey I like lettuce now I love carrots right if we talk about it if we give it to them, if we make it the family meal these lions will one day love vegetables if we just make them do it they'll change it right well that doesn't work in case you're wondering the Christian gospel is different namely that God changes the nature of the lion to love vegetables do you see that God gives you a new desire so you love what you used to not love now you love it right so it's not force feeding. It's, hey, that's really good. I want that now. So Christ changes your heart so you want to love the things you used to not love. You're, you're a new creation. You're a new creature. You're something quite different than a lion now. Because of that, now you can work out what is new in. Do you see that? So friends, examine yourself this morning. Am I a new creature with new desires? Or am, am I like that lion? I'm just... Getting force fed all day. I better do this. I better do that. I don't want to get in trouble by God. That's not conversion, right? Conversion is yeah, I want to follow. Yeah, it's hard some days, but where else would I go? Who else would I obey? I don't want sin. I want this, right? So if that that new desire is not in your heart, your conversion may be at stake. The good news is God does give new desires, He gives that, right? He gives you a new heart. He makes it very easy for us, right? He gives you a new heart, a new will. He turns duty into choice, right? He makes you lovers of Christ. So if we trust in Christ, God causes you to be born again, right? It's in your new nature. So friends, don't miss this. We must actively think Christianly, pray against our sin, fight our sin, confess, plan obedience, repent of our sin, read our Bible, strive for obedience, confess our sin, pray for another, gather together, labor, work out, work out. I mean, you have to do these things, right? What a wearisome thing that is. Let me give you the good news. And yet, look at verse 12. Uh, if, anything, if nothing else sticks in today's text, I'm sorry, verse 13, if nothing else sticks, let this stick. Nothing else does, this ought to be it. It is, the third principle, it is, it is miraculous. So it is continual, it is... Strenuous and it is miraculous. Look at verse 12, I'm sorry, verse 12 and 13, the very end here. With fear and trembling for, the lower four means because, right? Because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So just let that verse just simmer for one minute. This is why as a Christian, you should have fear and trembling when you obey when you're obeying, when you're striving, when you're reading, when you're praying, Lord, why do I keep doing that? Why do I keep thinking like that, Why do I keep saying that? Who is working in you? Almighty, sovereign, omnipotent God. Is that not staggering to think about? So don't miss this. When you work out your own salvation, when I work out my own salvation, who is really doing it? What does that verse say? It's God, right? But who was reading the Bible? Well, I was doing that. Well, who was turning from their sin? Well, I was doing that. Well, who was obeying? That was me. It is God. Do you see that? So you're responsible, but it is God who does it, right? Your working out is God's working in. Your doing is God's doing. My acting is God's acting. My willing is God's willing. So God isn't just helping, right? Hey, I'll, I'll give you training wheels. He's doing. Is that not profound? That every day that you have any step in obedience and truth because God is working in you. Though you did it all, God did everything. Isn't that stunning? Every act of obedience is God working in you. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10 says, Paul says, I worked harder than any of them. He worked harder, though it was not I, but the grace of God. So which one is it, Paul? Well, it's both, right? But it's God working in me. God is the one who gets the, the credit, right? So we're gonna have crowd participation here. So it should be a very easy answer. Who is to resist temptation, to love their neighbor, to tame their tongue, to serve, to speak, to encourage, to pray, to study, to strive? Whose job is that? Ours, right? hundred percent. For it is God who works in you. Do you see that? That's, that's, that's amazing. All you're doing of that is God doing that in you, right? God gets the credit for it. Every time you do those things, it is God who works in you. John Piper calls this, I act the miracle. So I do it and God does the miracle, right? Um, when I was a kid in California, my dad had a small white pickup truck. He used to drive to school every day. And occasionally he'd put me on his lap. My hands would be on that steering wheel. And boy, I was driving that thing. Let me tell you, I turned that wheel, the tires turned. Turned this way, they turned that mean, I, I, was driving. My dad's hands were on my hands. I thought I was I was pretty sure. No, I was actually steering, steering right? It looked like I was doing it. I knew I was doing it, but it was my dad steering for me. Do you, do you see the distinction there? That's the Christian life, right? It really looks like you're doing it because you are, but it's not you. It's God who works in you, right? So instead of let go and let God, it's get going with God or trust, trust God, get going. Don't let go, grab on and let God grab on, right? Psalm one, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So unless God does it, you're, you're, you're not doing it. You're, it's in vain. Unless the Lord watch over the city, the watchmen who are watching it stay awake in vain. So to be even more miraculous, look at the rest of the verse. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work. So it means two things very simply here. To will means more than just to help, right? God creates the want to. So when you want to obey, why is that? Because God gave that to you, right? And this verse just explodes. Like, well, God can't invade your free will. He just did a hundred times. He just said, I'll give it to you. I will literally give you the desire to do it, right? Right? And could it be any more gracious that he, he does that? I'll give you the willpower to do it, right? He gives you the want to, the desire, the affection, right? God gets no glory in foot-dragging obedience. He changes duty into delight. The new covenant in Ezekiel 36 speaks of God says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk. So you walk, but God causes you to walk. It's Ezekiel 36, verse 27. And to work, so it refers to uh, the energy. So God gives you the want to and the how to, right? And the able to, the ability to. Colossians 1, 29, Paul says, for this I toil. So man, I'm, I'm laboring for my brother's here. I'm doing all I can in obedience, struggling with all his, God's energy that he powerfully works within me. So we work, we struggle. God works in you, right? For it is God. So Christians don't have willpower. It's really God's will and God's power, right? According to his good pleasure, he does it so he would be glorified in it. Okay, that was the, the, heavy, front, the, the heavy front porch. Got a big front porch and a small house now. The rest we're going to just speed through, okay? But that's, if we get that, the rest of the sermon will make 100% sense, and I think you'll see where I'm going. So what, that's the process. What's the proof of sanctification? Look at verses 14 and 15. There's two things. What is the proof that I'm being sanctified, you could say? Well, first, what does it look like? Look at verse 13. Do all things without grumbling. Well, great. (laughs) Uh, In the original language, uh, Greek word order doesn't really matter for translation, but it matters for emphasis. In the original, it says, all things do, so without grumbling. So all things. So everything, don't do it by grumbling, right? Uh, It's like a dagger to the heart, isn't it? So don't grumble. I can't tell you how many times this week Kelly has said, Kel, do I'm not grumbling about it. I'm not grumbling. Me either, honey, but I am, right? Uh, it's my favorite Greek word. It's the word gungusmu. You say, it just sounds like a grumbler. Gungusmu, right? Just, okay, grumbly, right? just sounds like a grumble, doesn't it? It's often the, often the first thing we want to do is the first thing we shouldn't do, right? Because complaining, after all, is the American way, is it not? We complain about our government, and by we, I mean me, too, Taxes, weather, work, or family, the congregation, the pastor's sermon, too long, too short, other Christians, other drivers, other people, our income, our house, I can make you a laundry list, and we all say, yep, I'll do those too. I mean, it's the American way. You just grumble. It's just the American way, right? When we aim for our good pleasure, we will always grumble. Isn't it strange that Paul doesn't focus on like, hey, because this is true, don't commit adultery which you should not do that, so just FYI, right? Or uh, don't go rob a bank, or don't kill somebody, or don't cuss. Paul's saying, if you want to stand out, quit grumbling. If you want to work at your, your sanctification, stop grumbling, right? It's such a small thing for us. It's a big thing to the Lord, right? Seems insignificant. We place heavy weights on big sins. God puts heavy things on heart sins, right? On grumbling, In Exodus 16, when the Israelites were rescued from Egypt, in Exodus 16, five times Moses says, they grumbled, they grumbled. I mean, boy, there are some grumblers, right? And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 10, he says, do not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So grumbling is a pretty serious sin, isn't it? It's not just like a, ah, just complaining. It's pretty serious. God lobbies it pretty serious, doesn't he? Urban Luther said it this way, Complaining about our lot in life might seem quite innocent in itself, but God always takes it personally. So friends, just as the still water gathers moss, a stagnant Christian life will always have grumbling. Grumbling comes from a heart of distrust, right? Well, if I were God, it wouldn't be this way. That's exactly what I mean. If I were God, I wouldn't have that problem. I would change it right now, right? Right? It's like it's like bubbling up within my heart, right? That God's ordaining, God's doing in my life. It's just not good enough. If He was doing it right, this wouldn't be happening. And disputing is calling it into question. So it's not just a grumble. It's like, how can you be like? Why is this happening? What did I do? Right? That's disputing. And be warned, friends. Grumblers leaven the whole lump. It takes one grumble to ruin a family, doesn't it? One voice complaint in a rude way, right? It takes one grumble to destroy a church, one grumble to lose your job. I mean, we could do this all day. One grumble out loud. It's pretty serious, right? Imagine if we all had an invisible tape recorder around our neck. Couldn't see it, but it was there. And we recorded your speech all week, and we played it next Sunday morning. Who would volunteer to go first? I think we'd all be sick that Sunday, wouldn't we? I'll just stay home, me included, right? I would just, I mean, I've tried to obey this verse all week. I've failed every single day. I grumble by everything. Just nonsense stuff. Instead, the Bible says you should give thanks. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse 18. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Rather than spending our days grumbling, let us spend our time praying. You would grumble a lot less if we would pray a lot more. So may we be known for putting others down only upon our prayer list, as someone once said. So bring your burdens, bring your cares, bring your grumbling to the Lord, his nail-scarred hands. I promise he understands, right? He does. He knows exactly what you're talking about. He will bear it. Friends, could any of us truly say that we deserve a better life than what Christ lived on earth? No. Does not our Father send us new mercies every day? Do you have mer- new mercy every morning? Are you not surrounded by his love and care every minute of every day? If our pleasure was to do his good pleasure, we would never grumble. Let's strive for that. Second thing, what it looks like, now for what we must look like. Look at verse 15. So Paul says, do that. Why? That, so that's, that's the reason, that you may be What? You may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So God's work in you is for God's glory outside of you, right? What he does in you matters for people outside. God desires that he would be cherished and adored. He does that through who? Well, through you, through a gathered church, right? Isn't that stunning that God says, I want to shine out of that kind of dirty glass. So cleanse yourself, right? I want to shine out of that glass. We are images of Christ here and out there. And we are children of God. Friends, if Jesus Christ was crucified in public, uh, he means for you to represent him in public. It's very clear. So the question is, will Christ receive glory from your public life? Remember to do this, that you are first a child of God and your grumbling will just go away. Uh, One of our favorite hymns in our house is, this is our father's world. I'm not gonna grumble. This is my father's world, Why Should I grumble, right? Every person you, you interact with, you represent God to them. So how do you shape the way others see and think about God? It's very important, isn't it? Matthew 5, Jesus says that you're like a city on a hill. So people would see you and give glory to God, our Father, right? Friend, you only have one life to live in the midst of this world. Wouldn't it be better to just shine brightly? It's a better way to live, right? I assure you that there's nobody in heaven who will be charged with having lived too brightly for Christ. That will never be lobbied against you. You were so open about it. Never going to happen, Right? So let's not spoil a witness by how we grumble. Let us trust about how he governs our life. Like lights that shine the world, he says, right? God chose you. He adopted you. Therefore, let's let his light shine because God works in you that you would work out for his public witness, right? Thirdly and lastly, where is the praise for sanctification? So what is the process? What is the proof? And where is the praise? Who gets the praise and where is that? Well, it's two steps, very simply here. First step each day, look at verse 16. You do this by holding fast to the word of life. So the secret to growing into Christ by God's work in us is by holding to the word of life, right? So a sluggish Christian life always has at its root a very stale reading life. It's been said before, you are what you what. What you eat, right? Well, you are what you read as well. If you're not in the word, you will have a stale life, right? We should live not on bread alone, but on every what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God, right? And Paul's saying to strive to be these things, right? Christ influences his people by his word. Uh, If your life was a ship, the word would be the mast that the spirit blows upon to lead you and guide you. Um, Lately, Jude's been really looking into uh, planets and stars and the sun. He's just really in, in, into this stuff lately. Uh, do you guys know how far the sun is from the earth? It's about 93 million miles, okay? Um, and it has a tremendous influence over everything. It's got a huge gravitational pull. Uh, NASA measures it by something called AUs that's astronomical units. So, how far is one AU? Well, it's the distance between the earth and the sun. So, one AU is 93 million miles. The gravitational force, so how much influence the sun has, is 50,000 AUs. So it's 50,000 times 93 million miles. The math is just too big a number. I'm not going to say it. That's how much influence the word uh, that the sun has over all that's around it, right? Well, friends, that same power that upholds the sun to do that, the same word is in your lap. It's on the hood of your car. In your nightstand. It's right here. Would you be influenced by it? Would you read it? If the word spoke the world into existence, it can speak faithfulness into our life, right? Can it not? So friends, be ever in this book and have this book in you. It was John Bunyan's Bible uh, on the cover of his Bible. I think it was his mom, we think, or maybe it was him, we don't really know. But the cover of John Bunyan's Bible uh, on the inside said this, Sin will keep you from this book or this book will keep you from sin. So friends, hold fast to it. Secondly, and lastly, so every day and now the day. Look at verse 16 through the end here. All that, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud. So Paul's been priming the Philippians for the great day where all things will stand judgment. So Paul has run, he's labored for the Philippians. He's been motivated for glory, for their good, right? And Paul's saying, I've not run in vain. I've not labored in vain, have I? He's poured over them. He's prayed for them. He's preached to them. He's encouraged them. So Paul wants them to shine for stars on that day, right? It's on the day of Christ that everything will stand the test, right? What will be our plea? It won't be what we've done. It won't be how much we've read because God works all that in us, right? Nothing we can boast of. There's only one perfect life that matters and that's Christ's life imputed, counted to us, right? For he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So therefore, look how Paul sees his life as we close here. Look at verse 17. As a drink offering, right? Verse 17, 18, so that he would rejoice, that they rejoice. Well, a drink offering is this. When you think of the Old Testament and they would uh, kill a bull or kill a lamb, they put it on the altar, and the fire would eat it up, right? Well, drink offering is what they pour on top of that. It's like like wine. They pour on top of the offering, and if you pour alcohol on fire, do you know what it does? It just explodes up, right? It eats it up, right? It just consumes it. It gets hotter, right? Well, Paul is saying, I'm pouring out my life upon the work of Christ to consume my life. So Paul is saying, I want to be consumed in my devotion to Christ for their good, and that is what that the last day is all about is for the good of others, right? So we should come here to be filled up to pour out to others, right? That we would aim to be grown to help grow others. And as you do that, you will see yourself growing. At John MacArthur's church, there's an article that came out a long time ago saying that his is, he has the church of 500 pastors. You're like, what? That's a pretty big staff. What's going on there? Well, the article is referring to how every member in their church uh, is a minister. They minister to other people, to each other. I mean, they are minister They're pastoring each other. Right? That's what the Bible says we should do. be great to be a church like that, to be a group of that many ministers, right? I'm going to close, close it with one story. I read a book a couple weeks ago about the American Revolution. and There's an account of what happened between the naval battles of the French and the British And there was a cannonball that struck one of the French ships and it took off a man's leg. Just clean off, right? And multiple witnesses testified to the man saying this. Thank heaven. (laughs) Oh, slow down there. Thank heaven. I still have two arms and one leg to serve my king. So friends, regardless of where you are, age, ability, knowledge, thank God you still have this life to serve Christ. Let's pray.